And hello, hello. 158 people. All right. Uh, welcome to the Mental Health Hour. My name's Tim. Uh, normally on my broadcast here, it's usually on... Hi there, Ella. Uh, normally it's on Saturday nights, um, and we pick a topic like mindfulness or depression, and uh, I'll go through, you know, some things that I've learned, some things that I do, try and pass on a little bit of uh, knowledge, stuff that works for me, um, and how I cope with my mental health. Um, well, tonight we're doing a special broadcast. Uh, we are doing a special guest interview slash open conversation. Um, I was very lucky to meet this guest uh, on my first broadcast with Lucia. Um, I just went live one day. We were talking in the green room before. I just went live one day and decided to start putting my story out there and seeing what I could do on this platform. And that's where I met Lucia. And then she got me hooked up with a bunch of other connections. And Gemma, who is our guest tonight, came into uh, the broadcast and we've been friends ever since. Um, so I asked her if she would mind coming on and talking with us and sharing her story. And she was more than happy to do that. Um, this is a very special night. Uh, she says that she has made mention of her mental health in the past, but hasn't shared the full story. Um, so we're going to go ahead and bring her on now. And everybody, welcome, Gemma. Tim, thanks for having us. So uh, this is, we've been planning this for a couple weeks, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. What is most exciting to you about putting your story out there and um, moving forward with this mental health stigma we're trying to work on? I think for me, getting it out there is big because I've never truly spoke about it to anyone in full. But I also want to show people that it's not something to be ashamed of and that you can actually start to recover from it especially when you become more open and honest about it yeah yeah uh i think we both share the uh the passion in in trying to you know uh, as lucia always puts it break that stigma and uh be kind to your mind um and i apologize in advance uh if i miss any um comments here uh, i find it a little bit more focused on the interview when I have a, uh, a broadcaster mm -hmm. with me than uh, just interacting with everybody, but I'll try and keep it uh, mixed in there. Um, so uh, what we're going to do, we're going to talk a little bit about mental health. Uh, Gemma's going to share her story with us and uh, maybe open it up to a little Q&A if you're up for that, Gemma. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right. Um, well, without any further ado, why don't we uh, get started with your with your story and you can take it away whenever okay uh, thank you right so I'm just gonna start like I guess from the beginning and go on um, obviously 
we don't have all night, so I'm going to have to, like, talk about things, like, more limited than maybe it is. But for me, I noticed that I had depression, I guess, when I was about nine. Um, for a lot of it, I thought that my life was normal. I thought that the way that I was living was normal. Um, I've always had issues at home surrounding my home life, things like that. Um, I started getting bullied at primary school when I was nine and ten because my mum worked at the school and because when I was born, I was born with a disability and I had pots on my legs right up to my waist and couldn't walk till I was three. And I never actually managed to walk properly for a long time. I was on my toes till I was many, many years old uh, and had the surgery to correct it. But it wasn't until I went to high school um, that I started being really badly bullied for it. I was very, very underweight. I was... Um, because I was blonde, it was like there was everything, everything was wrong with me in the eyes of other people. Sure. And the very first time I really thought I can't cope with this anymore. I was 11 years old and I went into the bathroom at school. Um, I'd already planned it, I'd brought in some miniature bottles of alcohol and three boxes of paracetamol, and I downed the lot. In the, in the bathroom at the toilet, in the toilet of the school, sorry. Now, um, I'm sorry, how old were you at this time? 11. 11, I'm sorry. 11. Um, it didn't actually work, obviously. I'm still here. Um, it did make me very, very ill, and I ended up collapsing in one of the classes. I got sent home, never told anybody that I'd done that. And... It was like, why why didn't that work? What what am I doing wrong? I thought I'd done something wrong. And then I remember researching ways in which to kill myself because I couldn't cope with the school life. I told my parents I wanted to move schools. It got more and more aggressive. Um, I was physically groped when I was 12. And because I didn't like that, then everybody was like, um, oh, I'm, I must be, they were saying I must be gay, I must be, fr I was frigid, I was, I did everything, like, it was wrong, I shouldn't have rejected that at 12. Mm -hmm. And then I'm, like, thinking to myself, well, am I? Is there something wrong with me? Um, I even, like, went as far as to dye my hair because I was like, well, there's something wrong with this, it, I shouldn't be like this. Um, I was too skinny, so I'd wear really baggy clothes, trying to hide that. I'd get some of the most obscene comments. And one of the people, the main ringleader of all this at the school, was uh, the son of one of the school governors who had put a lot of money into the school. So it turned out that, you know, he couldn't do anything wrong. And then they started pulling me out of class once a week. And I had to have counselling with this nun that would come into the school. 
And that obviously put more focus on me because then I was being pulled out of this class and they knew about it. And I'm just like, there's not a thing I can do that is going to make this stop. And there was one time I was in class and the teacher then said to me, she wanted me to read something from Macbeth. I said, no, I'm not doing it. And then she said to me, what, are you thick or something? Can you not read? And I just upended the desk and I just went, fuck you, and went out of the class. And that's when I thought to myself, like, you know, is this is this going to be my life? Um, I went home and I, for a lot of the time, I used to use music as a way of release um, to, I guess, unwind from all that. But then it wasn't long before the cutting and stuff started. I'd start cutting my wrists and things, but then people would ask, why have you got a bandage on? So I got wise to that and started doing other places that were covered, like my legs were the most popular thing, which is why to this day I still won't wear like anything short. I always wear quite baggy trousers. And like, because I'm still aware that there's a lot of marks and stuff on my legs. But now I think to myself, well, I'm sure that there's a reason why all those really severe attempts didn't pay off. Because all in all, there was like, I think there was three times I had to go to the hospital for my stomach pumped because of overdosing. And twice where I had to go to the hospital and have cuts stitched up because of it. And then... There was like, it, I know the f one of the times I'd come home from school, I had my headphones in, and this isn't something I've shared much, but I went for some reason, went and sat in under the table. Now, my mum and dad's house didn't have like a separate dining room, the, the table was in the living room, and the only thing I can think of that is that my dad spoke to me and I didn't hear him and the next thing I know I'm being dragged from under the table with my hair because I had my hair in like a ponytail um, and he dragged me from under the stairs I lost my headphones and he'd been shouting saying that I'm disrespectful things like that and threw me up the stairs but he didn't pick me up enough to clear the steps and my face went smack bang into the into the stairs and I broke my nose. Um, I didn't go anywhere with it. It was like I literally had to sort of set it myself. I was, I think, 13 or 14 at the time. And it's at that point I thought, well, yeah, you know what? My parents aren't going to help me either. Um, I felt very much alone in the world. Continued to self-harm quite a lot but also did a lot of um drawings and things i've got one of my pieces of work up on the things actually do you want me to put it on yeah, this is absolutely. the first piece that i submitted when i was at school for my artwork i don't know how to do this. there we go like that's one of the first paintings i did when i was at school oh there we go and I added that as um, 
it was one of my um, exam pieces. A lot of the work that I did around my art and stuff was quite grim. And one of my teachers, I remember saying when I was doing my art degree, he, he said to me, your work's too dark. It will never, ever get anywhere. You won't make anything of yourself. And I just thought, you know what, whatever. And I ended up dropping out of that and never went any further with it. And it took me a long time till I had the courage to um, do anything with it. But in the end, I ended up using art as a way of expressing myself. And for a lot of the time, it, it was a way of me not hurting myself. Um, a lot of the time I would, there was a great deal of my time where I would draw things, people, even people that had hurt me, and then I would like, kind of like voodoo style, like stab the thing or burn it and stuff. And someone once told me to write all my feelings down and burn them. And it would be a bit of a relief for me. Um, I don't condone turning into a pyromaniac or anything. <laughs> but, you know, um, it, it did for a while. But then things just got on top of me again too much. Um. I actually got, I survived the whole high school thing. Goodness knows how. There's a huge chunk of me that has cut a lot of that out. Like I physically can't remember so much of my life because of it. Mm. Um, big chunks of my life that is, I've got no recollection of whatsoever. Just a complete um, blackout. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to... Um, like one of the jobs that I always wanted to do was acting. I do. I actually do that now, sort of. Like, but um, I wanted to do that, and my mum was like, "Oh no, you need to get a proper job. You can't do that. That's not a job." Um, and I ended up going into teaching. And a lot of the reason why I think I did that was because I thought if I can stop just one child having the absolute hell that I did, mm -hmm. then you know job done I guess and I did go to do that um I wasn't allowed to go to the feeder college that followed on from my high school because they told me that I wasn't smart enough to do that and in the end after because we have um something called GCSEs over here and it's like all the exams at the end where you get grades and those grades determine whether you can go on to college and things. If you don't get high enough grades, you have to retake them. It's, it's quite tough. And I didn't because I just, honestly, I just thought, fuck it, what's the point? Right. And whilst I didn't fail them, I did not get enough grades to go on to do teaching. So I went to, um, I went to work at a supermarket uh, part-time and did my reset all my exams again. And I, I kind of thought things were turning around a little. Um, redid those and then I ended up working in a school full-time on top of that and became heavily dependent on caffeine to keep me going then ended up being allergic to it, collapsed and had to have my heart restarted for it. Um, collapsed in the middle of school while I was working there. That was terrifying. Not that I remember half of it. 
So well, um, uh, let's let's uh, see from from the time you were approximately eleven to uh, fifteen, you've already mm -hmm. you've already experienced bullying, uh, multiple suicide attempts, sexual yeah. harassment, uh, physical abuse at home, um, yeah, and self harm. Yeah, so, and and that's that's within the span of four years. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, I t like I don't know what what made me carry on part of it, but then it's like the number of times I'd actually tried to and failed. It's like it, you kind of think, well, I can't even do that right, you know. And mm -hmm. I went on to do the um, redo the exams, did the teaching. I qualified. But whilst I was working at this supermarket, um, so I was 16 when I started there. For four years, I was sexually abused. And I say for four years because I did not have the guts to, uh, to report it because he was saying, well, you know, you're... Um, you're just a just a shop girl, just a checkout, and I ended up getting a promotion to being a supervisor. But it was always, oh, well, you're just nobody. Um, I am the head of security, and because he was security, he knew where all the cameras were. And mm -hmm. uh, when I was sixteen, I got raped in the back of the at the back of the store, and then I was raped again when I was 17 by the same person. But for four years, this sexual abuse continued till the point where I just thought, look, I'm qualifying soon. I've got nothing to lose. And I reported him. Um, I did report him and he was suspended pending investigation. But what came out when I did is that he'd not just done it before, but he'd done it multiple times. And when they, when it came to going to court, let's put it like this, not all the victims came, but there were 12 other victims that came to give evidence. And I'm like, well, how on earth has he got to this stage where he could do that to me if he's done it to others who have left? And it, I mean, it turned out that they did report him, obviously for them to be known about, but they backed out, and because they backed out, they couldn't, they couldn't follow it through. Mm. And that gave me the incentive to try and push it the whole way. Um, but certainly when I was going through all that with the abuse and stuff, I was self-harming a lot more. But then... He was doing an awful lot to me as well. Like when I was raped, I was, it was in the back of the, right at the back of the store, there was like some wasteland. And I would be, I'd be fastened up. Um, he would tape my mouth up and stuff. And I, the very first time I tried to fight it to the point where I had nothing left. And then the second time, I just, I just laid there. I just froze. I thought, this is my life, you know, this, this is it. Mm -hmm. And I just froze. I just had nothing. I just completely cut off. But then, around about the same time, 
I was in a relationship with somebody who I'd met whilst doing my teacher training. And this was all around the same time. And I remember watching, he was watching the football and I either coughed or sneezed. I don't know which one it was, but he totally flipped out on me and threw me around the flat. Now, at that time, I had really long hair, like way longer than it is now. And it was tied up, like down to about there. And he swung around the room with it and ended up chopping it off and threw me down the stairs. I managed to get out and I was raped again in the park but I wasn't just raped, I was knocked unconscious and stripped off and left. Um, I was very close, apparently, to dying of hypothermia because it wasn't until there was a man that was walking a dog. It was around five o'clock in the morning and I was woken up by a dog licking my face. Um, he went to get some help in the form of, there were some local council workers just like down there was like a little bungalow or something down the way from the park and they came and wrapped their uh, like their coat around me took me and phoned the police and at that time he was able to get away with date rape but because that had happened to me it's like well I can't report another rape they're gonna think that I'm crying rape here mm -hmm. and I just I just let it go um for so long to the point where I I did report it. It did go to court, but the um, the police officer that was dealing with it went on holiday for two weeks prior to the hearing, and it wasn't until we were in court that she came in to tell me. She says, I'm so sorry. I've messed up. I didn't apply for any of the witnesses to give evidence. So none of them, none of the witnesses, none of the victims can give evidence against him and it's you versus him mm. and she says you've got a choice now you either go in there and fight him on your own nobody can give evidence and you're not allowed to mention anything to do with any witnesses or any other victims or you can come out of the court and if he ever does it again he can be retried for yours and everybody else's prior but if you go in there and he's found not guilty, he can never be retried again for those people. And I'm like, well, can I see the other victims, see if they see what they want me to do? And they wouldn't let me. And in the end, I says, okay, well, I'm going to have to back out then. I kind of feel like I was coerced into doing that and giving that answer. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I don't know, but to this day, nothing, nothing at all. Um, nothing that I know of anyway. And the, the heartbreaking thing for me is that I see him occasionally. He has a wife and he has children my age. And he could do that and get away with it. And it just makes me sick to the stomach. I once saw him in a supermarket, not the one we worked at. And of all the places, it was on the the kitchen aisle where all these knives and stuff are and I'm like how easy would it be right now to just mm -hmm. yeah. but obviously I didn't but it just that triggered off a whole heap more of 
self-harming and to the point where I did start to drink for numb to numb myself mm -hmm. and I would regularly take um medication to try and stop myself thinking about it um I would even sit um in a room repeatedly smacking my head against the wall just trying to get it trying to get it out of my head um I do literally whatever I could just to I mean with the self-harm it was more about trying to get the pain this might not make sense to anyone but he was trying to take the pain from my head and my heart and physically put it somewhere else mm -hmm. so for that moment it wasn't about the hurt it was about the hurt that I caused it's a, and it's I was a release uh... yeah yeah and people would say about doing other things like the elastic bands around the wrist things like that but that didn't always seem enough for me sometimes I actually needed to physically see blood and I don't know what part of me now like I don't, I don't know but that that was basically what was going on but then the worst thing with all that to deal with um when I was at the school I'd finished that job and I'd started working full-time at the school trying to get going again trying to get my life going and then I was victim of what is known as it was over here it went around for a while called happy slapping and they wouldn't mug you or anything but they would beat you up film it and post it online mm. and that happened to me and I ended up having like cracked ribs cracked cheekbone or something quite quite beaten and bruised and then um it was uh I, I was taking the day off because I was I was absolutely black and blue with the bruises and my dad came home the following day I was laid in front of the fire because I was trying to like I had a hot water bottle on one side and then laid in front of the fire trying to get heat through the bones and that um, my dad came home and said to me, I need I need the remote. Um, I want to watch the cricket. And I says, well, I've been watching a film for nearly three hours. It's got five minutes left. And, and then you can have it. And he came to try and snatch it. So I, I clung on to it thinking, you know, no, I want to watch it. Now, his job was a long distance lorry driver and he used to wear steel toe caps. And I I don't know why, and he still to this day won't admit it, but he kicked the living shit out of me. And mm. those cracked ribs became full broken ribs. I dislocated my jaw, um, broken cheekbone, a broken nose again. Um, lots and lots of other things. There's, there is a photo. Like, I've toned it down because it really was quite bad. But that's that was the effects. Um, obviously, when you get a broken nose, it does your eyes. Um, I have toned it down so you can't see as much, but because it was quite graphic. Mm. Um, obviously, that's after it's cleaned up and stuff. But yeah, um, he didn't admit he 
the only one he ever admitted was the breaking of my nose, and he said that I deserved it. I, I don't know what he thinks I did to deserve it. But anyway, um, it is what it is. But um, I mean, you have to feel like your back is just against the wall at every turn here. Um, yeah, yeah. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem like they're uh, in any of the uh, stuff that you shared so far that there's been uh, a sense of uh, safety anywhere you go, or no. uh, that even the the justice system could do anything for you. Like you're just fighting from the trenches at all turns. Oh yeah, like. When I was, um, I think it was when I was 15, I used to have to go to this um, this counsellor. I was made to go to a counsellor but because I was under 16 and it was the hospital. They, um, they said that I had to have a legal guardian with me, um, an appropriate adult, which was my mum. Mm -hmm. And she would say to me, look, you can tell them whatever you want. However, just know that whatever you tell them has consequences. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I took that as, you know, keep stomp kind of thing. Mm -hmm. it, it was hard. It really was. But I, did, I, never, I never said anything. I told them when I went to the hospital. And um, I told them that it was that I'd fallen down the steps and that, you know, it was just me being me. I was clumsy, which has had its repercussions when it comes to my chronic pain and things, because now they just think that I'm clumsy. I was diagnosed very late with what I've got because they just thought I was clumsy. And, you know, it's like, well, where where do I go for help with anything? What what do I do? And then because I attempted to take my own life, I think they just saw me as a burden on the health system and everything. Um, because my health deteriorated quite a lot. It really started to go downhill from about fifteen, and then in my late twenties, really really went downhill. And the the frustrating thing is because I have a condition called Ellis Danlos syndrome, as well as like other stuff. But because that isn't a I'm not textbook, but also it's not a very well known condition. And because of that, and because to x-ray me most of the time, unless I've dislocated a joint, I look perfectly fine. And because of that, they were like, how's your mental health? You need to manage depressants. And it's like, no, I'm not on about that. And I had to fight for years and years not to be known as the, the clumsy one or the attention seeker. And they thought for years and years it was just that. It was just me looking for attention. And it, it really wasn't. And... I mean, as much as it would have been easy to make some stuff up to get out of the situation to be put in hospital, because on one occasion when I was kept in hospital, it meant I wasn't at home and I was in hospital. And oddly, I kind of like that because it was a safe spot, you know. Mm -hmm. But 
as much as it would have been easy to do that, that's not something I did because obviously you don't lie about your health or anything. But even when I did try and tell people about it, they, they were just not listening and I'm like constantly fighting against them. And it's like some people would just think, oh, she's after more medication. She's after more medication. And they would give me it which is why I believe that I'm heavily addicted to opiates now because I'm on opiates for pain relief and there's no way in heck that I'll be able to get off them because I, I do need them, but I know I'm addicted to them at the same time because when they're due for changing, if I don't change them on time, oh, like the side effects and the withdrawals from that is horrific. Mm-hmm. And I hate that I'm like that. I hate that I'm dependent on them. But I also hate that it's come to this with the pain because now they're saying, now they know more about it. They're saying that I should have had this surgery and that surgery done while I was still growing uh, to help certain things. I've had um, corrective surgery on my legs to straighten them because my the ligaments in my legs used to be that tight. I couldn't put my heels on the floor so I would kind of walk with like my my feet inwards but also on my toes I couldn't put them flat mm -hmm. and um it was it was hard for them to like it was just trying to get anyone to listen it's just like you know I don't know but then when I finally broke free of all of that like all nearly I'd say 90% of the relationships I've had have been abusive and I think someone once told me that the relationship you end up in often determine is determined by your parents and I thought well because of how my dad was is is that true because every relationship I've had I think maybe barring barring one, two at the most, was abusive, physically abusive. But then everyone but one was certainly mentally abusive, even my son's dad. Um, and I've been on my own now for six, nearly six years. It'll be six years in February. And... A huge part of me is terrified to get into another relationship because of what I could potentially bring into the house with my son around because he witnessed a lot of the abuse. Mm. And what broke my heart... Um, now, Thomas, my son, was... I'd say he was about seven months old when this happened and I would put him to bed and... I, I asked his dad, I said, can you be quiet? Like, I've just got him down. I'd been trying to get him to sleep for over an hour. And he came in and he just flipped out and he snapped the mobile off the cot and hit me with it repeatedly. And that woke Thomas up. And when we were clearing out his room about three years ago now, we found the little music box that came on the mobile 
And he said, that's the one that daddy hurt you with. And I'm like, what? Wow. And he said he, he broke it and hit you. And I'm like, you were seven months old. And I have never mentioned this in my life. How? And that really got me. I'm like, oh, my God, he remembers that? Mm. But then leading up to us breaking up, um, I had been getting drugged. I didn't know this at the time, but I'd been drugged for about six months straight because he didn't want to work. And the idea was that he would claim carer's allowance because I was registered disabled. And at that point, I'd been medically retired on health grounds. So I legally qualify as a for a carer and the, the state will pay them money to stay at home and look after me because it's cheaper for them to do that than to get like such as a nurse in. I don't have a nurse or anything like that. I want to be independent for as long as I can. But that was what he wanted to do. And I'd found out about it because not only had he been drugging me, but he'd been drugging Thomas. And I found out by getting one of those clocks with a camera in because I'd noticed the Calpol was going down. That's like baby medicine. Mm -hmm. I, I said, why, why has it gone down so much? He says, well, I spilt it. I'm like, well, why would you spill it if you've not been in it? It didn't make sense to me. And some of my patches and things had gone missing, the morphine patches. So I got one of those cameras and it showed that he'd been crushing medication and putting them in little balls, inkling film balls, and putting them under the drawer. So I opened this drawer that I could see on the video, and there must have been about 40, 50 balls of crushed medication under there. And he was putting them in my food and drink. And when I confronted him, he got me by the throat up against the door, and I just went limp and... I honestly think that if it wasn't for Thomas, he crawled over to me and went, Mama, Mama, and tried to put his arms up so I could lift him up. And, like, he dropped me, I was gasping for air, and I rang my mum and said, come and get him out. And she threw him out. I didn't report it originally, and it wasn't until I'd been getting stalked for a while afterwards and it got where I was having dead rats posted through the letterbox, human poo. I'd had paint thrown over my car, nails on the drive, eggs at the window, human poo all over the windows. I'd, somebody had put um, a flower on my door with an RIP sign on it. And then once they'd put um, something lit through the letterbox to try and catch fire to the house. Um, when I reported that, they came and put a fire bag on the back of the door so it, anything put through it wouldn't catch. And I reported it and I was told to keep all the evidence, things like that. And then it wasn't until we were in a shop and he came in. And it was at the time where my son was part in the wheelchair and part walking. And he came into the shop, threw him over the shoulder and run out with him so I followed him now because I use a crutch to walk with that was tucked in the back of the wheel in the pushchair and I was putting the shopping on the hood of the pushchair mm -hmm. but my my first thought was my son he's got my son so I ran after him got him 
and he'd only got about two shops up. Got him, turned round to go back. But before I knew it, there were the security guards walking to me, dragging me back to the shop, accusing me of shoplifting. And I'm like, this is, this is, you're joking. This is a bad dream. This can't be happening. I said, you need to look at the CCTV. It turns out there wasn't any. And they phoned the police. He came back into the shop and was like, I'm, I'm the kid's father. I'm the kid's father. And she frisked me and everything. And they took me back to my car and stripped of everything that was new. I had my car air fresheners taken, CDs, everything. Anything that I couldn't prove that I'd bought was taken. I didn't get half of it back because who keeps the receipts for like car air fresheners and the CDs that have been in the glove box for ages? You don't. Um, I was able to prove obviously the new stuff I bought because I had receipts, but anything else? And I was given the choice there. I either signed to say that I'm permanently banned from that store, which is a very big chain of stores, or I can go to the police station and fight it. However, if I fight it, they were going to let his dad take my son. And I said, no, you need to look up. You need to look this up uh, on the files and see what's going on. And they wouldn't. And she says, you're a disgrace of a mother bringing your son shoplifting like this. So I signed the forms and thought, you know what? Fuck you. And I closed the whole case down and said, I'm, I'm not doing anything. I'm not reporting anything to the police anymore because they've let me down before with the court case. They let me down with the rape because they said it was date rape. They've let me down with this. I'm like, I'm not putting any more trust into the police ever again. And I pulled out the whole case, so he still walks. Um, he doesn't see his son much. Um, he saw him for Father's Day because, unfortunately, their school had made Father's Day cards. And I think that brought him back to, oh, I've actually got a dad. And he saw him that day, but that's the first time since the cancer diagnosis, which, like was February 2019 mm -hmm. and then the the big thing with the mental health which is why it's so important to me on two occasions now I've nearly lost my son I'll just show you the first one um there was this article um from when my son had sepsis he was two years old and I took him to the doctor's time and time again saying that he wasn't well um he was having problems breathing uh he had a really really bad cough and it was constant i'd been taking him for months and they was like it's a viral there's nothing wrong with him it's just a viral and in the end he'd gone he, he got to a temperature of 42 Celsius, which is way over 100 Fahrenheit. Um, and he had a convulsion. He went on full seizure right in front of me, went limp, eyes rolling. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to take him back to the hospital. And I refused to move or go anywhere until someone checked him. And it got 
that bad. He'd had an undiagnosed chest infection, which had been left dormant for about four or five months, which is how long I'd been taking him. And he ended up with sepsis and he nearly died. He was on IV antibiotics. He couldn't breathe. He was in hospital for a while. And it's just like, why, why wouldn't they listen to me? But then it's not until February in 2019 where, let me find it. He again became ill. This one now. Oops, let's take that one off. There we go. Um, that one. And again, he became very poorly. I'd been taking him to the doctors for about four months prior to diagnosis, saying that he was bruising easy. He was complaining about a lot of joint pain. He had lost a lot of weight. He wasn't eating. He was very tired all the time. And I said, I begged them. I said, please just do a chest x-ray to make sure it's not a chest infection or something. And it wasn't until he'd had a bit of a tantrum because he didn't want to go back to school. And he ended up getting a rash from like midway down on the torso up. And... I automatically thought, oh, God, meningitis. Got the glass, put it over his skin, and it didn't go. And it was like, this is meningitis. Got to get him to the hospital. And they kept me, like, they put us in a room after quite a while, did some blood tests and things. And it was seven, just before 7.30 in the morning of the 12th of February. And they came to take me into a side room. And I remember saying, oh, he's going to fall through the beds because we'd been given these camp beds because they didn't have any beds mm. spare. And I was there the whole night trying to hold these camp beds together because my son, if you like, if you share a bed with him, it's like sleeping with a snake with a right hook. He just doesn't lie still. And I was trying to hold these beds together whilst not getting smacked in the face at the same time. And I'm like, oh, but if I leave, he's going to fall down the middle of the beds. I'm trying to joke about it as well. And they were like, oh, well, they, I can't remember her name, but she was going to watch him. And they took me in to the side room and said, your son's got cancer and we need to act fast. They did a chest x-ray and like 80, I think it was about 86% of his entire chest cavity was full of cancer. He had It was leukemia he had, but the, the chest was covered as well. And the reason he couldn't breathe it was, was it was like crushing his lungs and it was crushing his heart and he was struggling so much to breathe that, um, that like they had to start. Within an hour, he was on heavy steroids and things like that. And we were in hospital for two months getting treatment. And he's still getting treatment now. We've literally just found out today that his bloods have recovered enough to resume chemo because he became neutropenic, which means he had no natural defense in his blood to fight any infection. So they had to postpone his dental work. They've had to cut his chemo because of the risk of infection. And um, they... It's like, it wasn't until afterwards that I was like, well... Why will they not listen to me? And what someone just mentioned there, I hope you're going to sue them. Like, I am now. Um, I have got a solicitor involved because the, the first one I let go 
but the second time they nearly killed my son and then they overdosed his medication. Um, it's like, what are they trying to do? So there's a, an article here. Um, it's that one. And um, it's because I tried to um, raise awareness for that. And we've been raising a lot of money for cancer and because we've done that we've had um we've had a charity set up in my son's name to raise money for childhood cancer and leukemia and that went live on his seventh birthday in september last year and we've raised about four and a half thousand pounds and still going but it wasn't until i requested all my medical records to see like i requested mine and my son's to find out what, like, why will they not listen? There's got to be something. And it, it, in my records, they tried to diagnose me with Munchausen's by proxy because they said that I have had my own mental health problems and they think that I'm trying to inflict them on my son. I'm like, are you kidding? And that my head blew. I'm like, there is no... There's nothing, if you've got a mental health problem, there's absolutely nothing here that protects you from that happening. Mm -hmm. And I've spoken to loads of people online and in the hospital, and it's very true that if you have a mental health problem, the first thing that certainly doctors will think of is mental health issue. What's wrong? What's going on up here? And that's all that ever happens. And it's just like, what the hell? There needs to be, it needs to be a thing where, yeah, okay, I have got, I have got depression, but that doesn't define who I am and what kind of mother I am. Right. Like, I am going out of my way now to make sure that Thomas doesn't have that happen to him. And because lately he's been suffering with depression, and a few weeks ago, he said, I don't want any more medication. I just want to die. And I'm like, to hear that from my son, he's seven, it's, it destroyed me. And I've been getting him help. But at the same time, I'm reluctant to go down the medical route to get him help. Right. Because if he gets mental health put on his records, he's fucked in the future. Like, so I'm I'm going like private routes to get him the help that he needs mm -hmm. that doesn't mark his his hospital records, and it shouldn't be like that. If you've got a mental health problem, you should be able to reach out and get help without the fear of backlash later on on your like if you've got a problem, because mm -hmm. this cancer is going to give him problems. He's already got problems with his legs, and what I don't want to happen years down the line is for them to say oh well he's got a mental health problem no like, yeah, yeah, he might have had depression but that's not who he is right. and it really annoys me that they can do that yeah, I mean it, if you if and like you said it it kind of mars your record there but uh, mm -hmm. also with, with the folks with any mental health issues uh, dealing with substance abuse that's all you hear there too. Is just a, if you come in with a with a behavioral issue or anything, mm -hmm. they immediately say that you're on drugs. 
or, or something. So I understand right. exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. There's such a stigma around it, and there doesn't, there shouldn't be, because it's making people scared to get help, which is why I really believe that there are so many suicides and self-harm because they don't think that there is anywhere to go for that. And I really want to try and change that somehow. And I think the more people like yourself and me and anybody else that speak up about it, maybe even if there's just one person in here now listening to this and if it can help them in some way, then, you know, it was worth it. Right. And I've always said my DMs are open if anyone ever needs to talk, whether I know you or not, that's not an issue. Um, don't feel alone at all because you're not alone and you're not going to be the only person that has felt like this. It's just like... I look back, there's one here I uploaded, there's me as a child and my son as a child. And I look back at it and think to myself, I I did that actually, I was trying to work out if there was any signs like of him being ill or of me showing any signs of anything. Like you, you kind of look back at the photos and think, was there anything that I could see that was going to happen? Is there any no- anything that's noticeable? And I mean, obviously there isn't, but I don't know. I mean, my son went from being a, a happy little boy to not care, not caring about anything and driving me crazy with Legos on the floor and cursing every time I stood on one because that is a pain in itself <laughs> to know all about medication. And he knows about his medicines. He knows what they're called. He knows what dose he's on. And it's like he's seven. What? the heck <laughs> sure so i i don't know that's i so, think it's great what you're doing though uh are you doing anything um you you mentioned that you're uh seeking some some help for him um mm-hmm. are you keeping uh knowing what you've gone through are you keeping a watchful eye on things like self-harm or anything or are we not how old is thomas at this point he's seven he'll be eight in september and that's what worries me because i started not long after him right yeah um so uh, uh, what a story um this this has been your entire adult life and Mm -hmm. well into your i mean teenage and adolescent um what what do you find yourself doing uh today to to cope with all of this um to Um, a lot of i love music so a lot of the time i just do listen to music and i do a lot of drawing and artwork things like that um even down to broadcasting just to meet people like yourself and other people to have the friendships and things that I never had. And I think that's a lot of the time I, I'm i very nervous around people because I, I'm not used to having the friendships and stuff. I went through my pretty much my whole school life having very few friends and having serious trust issues with people because I'm like, well, they're only going to hurt you. And my motto was 
never tell anybody everything because if they've got everything they've got enough to destroy you with mm -hmm. and it's like it shouldn't be like that so it's the first time i've really shared all of this ever i mean there's a lot more i could say like with the abuse of relationships things like that um but like we don't have all night for that you know <laughs> um, but i i had gone a year without self-harm up until about two months ago when something happened and I could have let that destroy me. It nearly did. I'm still overcoming some of that. However, I haven't self-harmed now at all for about, it's around about two or three months, thereabouts. And now here's one of, that's one of the interesting things in this, uh, in this mental health world. Um, the, the one day at a time slogan uh, yeah. so far uh, supersedes Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, yeah. uh, Alcoholics Anonymous was a program written for alcoholics back in the 1930s. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it has um, evolved into uh, so many other uh, issues. I mean, you can just pick something out of the sky and put anonymous after it. And you can write or you can follow the mm. AA program for that one day at a time kind of approach. Um, mm. Like you had mentioned, it's been so many days since I've self-harmed. Uh, it, it's no different than me saying so many days than I've had my last drink. Um, mm. So, I mean, do you find do you work a program, any any kind of uh, program like that to to uh, keep um. track of your days or, you know, uh, go to meetings or anything like that? I used to do, there was a meeting um, that I used to go to for self-harming and things like that. And I, I did two or three. Um, I'm not a massive fan of the big group ones because I'm not a big group kind of person. Sure. But like certainly the last one that I went to pre-COVID was good because they wouldn't, they were different. They wouldn't tell you, don't do this, you know like they would their approach was very different and it was more like well okay if you're going to do it maybe look at ways of trying not to do it but if you do do it then make sure you're safe um and it was about that for a long time and then I was trying to find different ways of hurting myself without the risk involved like elastic bands around the wrist um ice cubes in the hand um other things that would give me the instant out <coughs> not like not the hurt or the risk attached of like cutting a wrist or something right but i do have an app on my phone and i i do regularly check in with it and monitor my mood so that not only does it give me a like an idea of how long it is since I've done anything, but it's a way of recording my feelings so that I recognize that as well. Because sometimes, like, unless I really think about it, I don't know how I feel because I've got to that stage with everything that's happened where it's just numb. And I really have to think about how I feel now because it's like I'm not used to everything. I'm just numb to everything. Right. And 
I do get easily upset with certain things and I'm really bad at having to, I, I feel guilty about it sometimes, like certain friends and things, like if I haven't heard from them for a while or whatever, I'm like, well, have I upset them? Have I done something wrong? Because for so many years of my life, I wasn't used to having anyone that gave a shit about me. And sometimes I have to really push myself into keeping in touch with people as well. Because I'm very good at closing off from the world when I feel rubbish. I think, well, people aren't going to want to bother with me. They don't want to. They don't want to bother with me. Why would they want to bother with me? And it it upsets me that I do that. But I, it's also like a self-preservation thing. Sure. Because when I feel like that, I don't want to inflict it on other people. But I also don't want to upset anyone but i also don't want to talk about it sometimes i don't i don't yeah. know it makes sense to me sure um one more i have one more question for you and uh yeah. we'll we'll stay on a little bit longer if you're up for it uh if anybody yeah. in the audience uh anybody in the comment section has a question for Gemma or, or myself please feel free yeah. to type it in we'll get to some uh mm -hmm. one last question for me would be uh, a hot topic, you know, obviously, this mm -hmm. past year, uh, the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. How did that? How did you find that affected your day to day? Um, oh. If it did, um, mm -hmm. you know, as far as your mental health goes and how you cope with with each day. Yeah, uh, that was really rough, especially not being allowed to go out of the house because I was classed as high risk, and. Certainly during the first spell of it, I, I think I was in the house without going out, except to the hospital, which was kind of became a blessing because it was like a day out. Um, but to be trapped in your house for three months. Now, I live in the same house that I had the abuse from my ex. Mm. And I have now made sure that everything in this house is different to how it was when he was here. I went crazy trying to redecorate. It might seem stupid, but I didn't want any sign of like, oh, he painted that. Or It, it, it made sense to me because I wanted to make it look different. Sure, sure. Because I don't own this house. It's like a rented from the, um, from the council. So you can't just get up and move. It would take a long time, and if I was to give up this house, chances are I'd, I'd, I will, I couldn't, I couldn't. I'd have to go private, and it would cost me more than I, uh, more than I have. Um, so to be stuck in the house, and then with Thomas, who was like getting so fed up at the same time, there was no time for me at all because he was going to not going to school, and it was just like. Ah, but at the same time, I think that was a good reason why I didn't self-harm because I've always promised I will never do it while he's about and I right. couldn't get time to myself. But although I, whilst I wasn't self-harming like that, it was like I would go into the bathroom a lot of the time and just cry um 
my my mental health i i completely cough for so long from people from everything and i literally just went into like a it was like a numb mode where i've done before like going back to when i was raped and stuff how i just i went limp for that and like cut off mm-hmm. and where I don't think anything, I don't know if you know what I mean, but you just go numb Mm -hmm. and there's not a thing that goes through your mind, nothing, it's just dead. And that is how I lived my life for so long. It was like, right, get get Thomas up, get him his breakfast, get him dressed. That's all I did, like a routine. I was like a robot. It was like, I've got to do this, this and this, and the rest is just boom, go. Right. And that's that's how I lived but then the hard part because I'm quite unwell medically and I was waiting for surgery and my health has really deteriorated because of that now some of my medical problems stem to being raped um one of the issues I have was when I was raped, shall we just say that a glass bottle was used and it caused significant trauma? Um, I mean, it's not like you couldn't tell, but I have that. And then my condition has caused a lot of things inside of me to not work anymore. Like I've had a multi-organ prolapse in the lower half and I've had to have tubes and things inserted just to make my body work. Um I'm potentially due a feeding tube just to help because I can't eat anymore. But it's certainly my health has deteriorated because you can't get the help here at the moment unless you've got COVID. But yeah. that's also had a knock-on effect to my mental health as well. Which, like yeah, I, I won't go to the doctor and speak about it because they'll be like, oh, here's some more antidepressants. And I won't take them anymore. I've just stopped. And I don't advise doing that, but for me, they weren't working. Right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, it took a while for me. I know, I know what you mean, um, because I I did need to go on some antidepressants, uh, mm. and and it, it basically I had to shop around a bit um, to find mm. the the one that worked for my body. Um, there, the first couple of uh, prescriptions, but yeah, it just did some nasty things mm. like side effects. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, they do have horrible side effects. So, I mean, I did find uh, a combination that's working right now, and and thank God for it. Um, it's just yeah. another tool in the toolbox for me. Um, mm-hmm. But moving forward now, um, I don't see any questions from the commenters, but. Um, if, if, uh, I know we talked about it prior to, but I'll tell everybody that's watching and, and replay viewers and, mm-hmm. um, I, I plan to, or I'd like to, uh, open this invitation to you, uh, on the broadcast in a more, uh, permanent manner. Um, you know, maybe we, I, I really feel like we both have a strong passion for this and, um, looking at all the comments i've been watching them come in while you were telling your story you have quite a following here and quite the support of uh of all these folks so 
yeah. if we can do something together, I mean, like like you said mm-hmm. earlier, two heads are better than one. And yeah, uh, you, so you hear that uh, more Gemma to come <laughs> down the road yeah, here yeah. on on the mental health hour. Um, mm-hmm. And did you have any uh, any closing any closing words or? Um, only thing I'd just say again, like if there is anybody watching this that it does feel like they're on their own or need someone to reach out to, like honestly, just like message me. You're not on your own. Um, no judgment whatsoever. I'm not like trained or anything, but sometimes just having someone knowing that they're there just to even just read what you're saying or talk to like Mm. even just telling you now this I can feel the weight being lifted because sometimes when you tell people things and they're like oh you know um but to see that it's it is normal to feel that way like normal as in like I'm not the only one right and that there are people and there are, it, you can get through it. Um, certainly that's helped. And then coming on here and broadcasting and meeting people like yourself, um, that that really has helped. And I'm glad that I could share my story with you for that. Like, this is the first time I've ever really, really gone into it. Uh, how, do, how do you feel after uh, get, uh, letting it out there? Is it? Is it? Are you finding a sense of relief? Are you finding a sense yeah. of exhaustion? Uh, um, I thought I was going to get emotional at a couple of points, but do you know what? Just to get it out there and like, it, just to share it, it's like it is. It's a huge weight lifted, and I kind of feel lighter in the sense that you know what is out there now, and there are some people that know me for a while that maybe can relate to some of the stuff that I've said about the way that I am sometimes sure and now they know so you know yes and that um that brings up another good point uh that I'd like to let all the the viewers and and uh the live viewers and, and replay viewers know um if uh that's this is exactly what I wanted this show to be um when I hit live for the first time and just started telling my story i had no clue you know exactly what was going to come out of it but i'm very happy with what has uh transpired so far and if if anybody uh else has a story that they'd like to tell um and and come on this broadcast like Gemma did uh please reach out to to myself or Gemma on our dms uh my twitter is is usually uh, good. I have an Instagram, but I, I'm rarely ever on it. So, um, and I'll, I'll, I do it, uh, in the broadcasts previous. So I'll drop my email in there as well. Um, that you can, uh, send me an email, please reach out to Gemma as well as she's going to be a lot more involved with the show, I hope. And, uh, and together we'll, we'll figure something out. We can get some, we can have some guests in more regularly. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then uh, we can do topic discussions and such like I've been doing. Mm-hmm. So, Gemma, I would like to thank you very much for coming on and 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 using my 
broadcast to uh, to tell your story for the first time. That, that was very yeah. Nice. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate um, it. it. And uh, if uh, I do want to give a little plug to Jim in Chicago land. If, uh, if, if, well, Jim, it's, it's late where you are, but, uh, mm-hmm. um, here in the, here stateside, we, we have catalysts tonight. Uh, Jim in Chicago land does a Wednesday night broadcast. Yeah. That's, that's kind of mental health ask. If you ask me, uh, he just mm-hmm. puts the, uh, puts the camera on the fire pit and we all sit around and shoot the shit together and, and just mm-hmm. kind of, and it, it was said many a times uh, at my inpatient rehab center. Um, oh, did I? There we nope. go. <laughs> uh, it was said many times at my inpatient re- rehab center that a lot of the best therapy happens after 4.30. And after 4.30 was when all the classes were over and we all sat outside by the fire pit and, and talked amongst each other. So yeah. it's a great broadcast every Wednesday night and uh, he'll be on tonight and I'll probably be over there. Um, oh, Jim's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> he's a good guy. He, uh, and of course he was the first one to throw a llama up there when I was on Beardo Weirdo last night. So <laughs> I had to do the oh, llama. You didn't have to do the llama, did you? <laughs> I did several oh, times. I need to watch it just for that now. See? <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thank you again to Gemma. And uh, we will will catch you next time. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'll be doing a broadcast on Saturday at 8 p.m. as per normal. But we might make some adjustments with the schedule uh, Mm -hmm. to to better fit Gemma's time zone. So thank you, guys. uh, 11 o'clock. My time's fine. I'm a night owl, what can I say? (laughs) Yeah, well, me too. I can't lie there. All righty. Well, thank you again, Gemma, and thank you to everybody that tuned in, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye.